Hi, and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington. Found, of course, is where you hear the stories behind the startups, and it is the absolute number one best podcast period. in the TechCrunch universe, but period. And who you heard just there, of course, it's the Tesla to my Prius. Yeah, Jordan Crook. I like that. That's sexy. Like, you're the newer, better. I was like a precursor. Yeah, you started it, though. You right. were a pioneer in the space. Yeah, and just a, a hybrid. Slashy newcomer who picked up the mantle. I was effective at what I needed to do, but not really a looker. <laughs> Why are we talking about this? I don't know. We should talk about this episode of the podcast. Our guest this week is Sunil Paul, who is the co-founder and CEO of Spring Free EV, which is not an EV company per se, even though EV is in the name. It's actually a fintech company that makes EVs more affordable for actual drivers. So basically, they lower the cost using an innovation they came up with called the Mileage Purchase Agreement. Actually, Sunil came up with that. And many, many startups ago. ago. Yeah. yeah. But he realized this was an innovation that could be used to help spur adoption of EVs and get specifically small fleets on board with purchasing them in volume. So very cool. It's one of those things where you're like, okay, I get it. Like this is one of those ideas that is a nuts and bolts behind the scenes idea, but it's one of the things that is really actually going to spur adoption of vehicles, whereas things like plaid mode or whatever Elon's coming up with might not attract a huge amount of people to go buy the cars because that's on the very expensive model and no one can afford that, for right. instance, right? It was a great conversation with Sunil. We went far and wide on EVs and climate and everything in between. So let's go ahead and let him explain what Spring Free EV is and how he came to create it. Hi, Sunil. Thanks for joining us. Hey, great to be here. All right. So we like to start these off by getting a little bit of an explainer of your company. So we're here to hear about Spring Free. free. Ah, I mean, you do that. <laughs> we're here to hear about Spring Free EV, which I just learned is a bit of a tongue twister. But... Yeah, real time <laughs> lesson. But definitely a very cool concept behind the company. Uh, you're probably better at explaining it than I would be. So why don't you take it away and give us a kind of TLDR on what Spring Free EV is all about? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm Sunil Paul. I'm CEO of Spring Free EV, and I get a lot of practice saying it, so I usually don't trip on it. It is a fintech company set up and designed to have impact on climate by making electric vehicles more affordable and accessible. We do it through a really simple idea, which is we charge a fee per mile and use that revenue to make the upfront cost more affordable. As you probably know, the upfront cost of the electric vehicle is the biggest problem with adoption. Yeah. And so we fix that problem. Nice. Yeah. And I've noticed uh, the focus is on, you know, high mileage drivers. So I imagine you end up tying up with a lot of folks who do gig economy work or, you know, Uber Eats or Uber or Lyft or that kind of thing. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So there are two reasons for that. Hmm. So we are focused on the sharing economy and car sharing in particular. And many of those car sharing hosts also work with Uber, Lyft, and delivery right. drivers. The reason for it is that if you have an electric vehicle, eventually the total cost of that vehicle will be lower right. than a gas-powered vehicle. But only if you drive it. 
Yeah. <laughs> if you just stick in the garage, it's never going to be cheaper. <laughs> That's actually the reason I still have my CE, right? My car, I use, I don't know, like once a month. I use it enough to keep the battery going, but not much more than that. And if I had an electric, I would feel like an idiot. And also it would just be, the battery would just be leaching or whatever they call it, like slow drain, right? Especially in right. the cold Canadian winters. Canada. So I, I take that point very personally. Yeah. So that's that's one of the big reasons. The other big reason is they're the ones that use sedans. And if you think about what are available today, it's all sedan yeah. electric vehicles. The SUVs and pickup trucks are not yet available. Now, I happen to know a lot about car sharing and ride sharing. I've been involved in car sharing from the beginning. I incubated get arounds. Yeah. I started the first ride sharing company. So, you know, this is a, a comfort zone of understanding that world. Right. Yeah. And it's really just the beginning. Like we have ambitions to be able to solve this problem across the US, around the world. But you gotta start somewhere. You know, you can't boil the trillion dollar ocean. You gotta start with a, a niche. Yeah, for sure. And so you mentioned a bit about your background. Like was that kind of your in to this business? When you were working in car sharing, where did you see this opportunity and, and figure like, oh that this is a perfect someone should build this business and it should be me. Or how did you kind of get into it? Well believe it or not, I've been thinking about this since at least two thousand nine. I was looking for some other patents that I have, and I looked up one. I happened to see this one. I kind of forgot. I, I filed a provisional patent on a variation of this idea back in 2009. It's been kicking around in my head for a very long time. It didn't really start taking life until the wildfires hmm. started happening here in California. And I looked at my own, what can I do more right. to have an impact on climate and realized that you know, using my strengths, I'm I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an operator, I'm a fundamentally an optimist. And I thought, oh, you know, that MPA idea, that mileage purchase agreement idea, just the crux of what we do, mm -hmm. that could have big impact. And, you know, I went and did the math and figured out, yeah, like we could have big impact with this idea, bigger than what solar did, you know, with Sunrun and Solar City and Mosaic. Right, right. Those companies fundamentally changed the nature of solar installs through fintech innovations. And we think we can do the same thing with electric vehicles. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting approach to take the, the fintech angle. We actually had on another founder, Kentaro from, Jordan, remind me the company name? Persephone. Persephone, right. And so they do accounting for carbon credits, essentially, right? The idea being companies will want some kind of verifiable standard that they can show to regulators and peers. But his quote was, you know, capitalism made or created the, the climate change problem and Capitalism is the means by which we need to fix it or words to those effects, right? But it seems like your approach is very much in that spirit. Is that fair to say? Like when you look at that and you yeah. think, how can I contribute? Like I, I suppose a lot of people would say like, well, why don't you go nonprofit route or something like that, right? Especially if you've been successful thus far, you have significant means, but you're obviously taking the approach of like a for-profit business is the way to turn this around. So talk a little bit about more about that motivation, I guess. It really comes down to this business and every other business that will end up solving our climate problems is going to need a lot of capital. Mm -hmm. And if you look at where is the capital available, there is money in the philanthropic sector. And there's also money in the government sector. But the vast bulk of money available, because in the philanthropic sector and the government sectors, that money's already allocated and right. reallocating it to something else is, is a challenge. Reallocating something in the commercial sector is a function of risk and reward. Mm -hmm. So if you can develop a new method for, you know, better return for the same risk or better, you know, whatever, get that ratio right, money is going to flow in. 
And there's a tremendous amount of capital out there that wants to invest in sustainability and, right. and governance, ESG uh, kinds of investments. There's already $3.5 trillion just in equities globally interested in ESG investments. And you know, by the way, there's not that many opportunities to invest in something that can scale mm -hmm. to hundreds of billions of dollars. So our goal is really to create a new asset class, like a new asset class that can bridge the gap between all of this capital that would like to be able to have an impact and the millions and millions of drivers around the world that want to have an electric vehicle. Right. Electric vehicle is fundamentally a better car. Yeah. The number one obstacle is it costs more upfront. And so if we can remove that obstacle, it's going to unleash a huge wave of innovation. And it can have an impact on climate. I'm happy to talk more about that. But it's the reason why we're doing this company. You ask why not a nonprofit, that's one reason. But I, I will tell you that I think nonprofits definitely are an important role in all of this, mm -hmm. in instigating for having solutions to climate. And there may yet be a role here. I mean, especially you look at the way that the crypto world is set up. Often there is a nonprofit that is the, the center of it. Right. You know, we definitely continue to think about that as we grow. But right now, that's a we've got something that's working. We got product market fit. We're just like, just keep the pedal down. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> keep growing. <laughs> so, like, what was the starting point, right? Like you mentioned the provisional patent in 2009 and then the wildfires kind of like sparking something yeah. emotional or internal in you. But then like when you sit down and you're like, okay, I'm going to start this company based on this idea. Like what's step one, right? Like how do you identify step one and where did you start? It's interesting because I did not start out thinking I was going to start a company. I started out thinking I've been trying to give away this idea for 10 years. <laughs> I've talked to people about it. I've shared it with big auto OEMs. And I thought, it was actually on my birthday, 2019. I remember I, I posted something on LinkedIn saying, hey, are there some entrepreneurs out there that be willing to help me with a new idea? And so I got some responses. I, I ended up running a contest to try to get other entrepreneurs excited about the mileage purchase agreement and see if we could get to product market fit with that effort. Right? Basically, I got 22 teams from around the world all kind of focus on different aspects of product market fit. And yeah, should it be should it be rideshare? Should it be trucks? Should it be the US or India or or the UK? And that was a fantastic experience. And what I learned out of it was okay, there are some possible paths to to product market fit. And these companies are going to need capital to be able to scale. And so the original original idea was well let's go create a fund that can help these companies scale. As we looked at that idea, two things happened. One, I did the math. Like, and I'll tell you the the key moment for me. If you were in the Bay Area in in the fall of 2020, everybody remembers the Orange Sky Day. It was just so bizarre, and we, you know we all sat around saying, "What the WTF?" And that moment, along with the other wildfires, I went and I did the math. I said, okay, how many vehicles would it take to get to one gigaton of carbon dioxide reduction by 2030? I published the results of this. And, and I had been thinking about that result. I was like, oh, right. Okay, well, could a financial innovation like this, could a fintech innovation like this get to 100 million extra vehicles? And I concluded, yeah, yeah, we could do that. Okay, well, that's not a fund anymore. That is a that's a company along the lines of Sunrun or Mosaic 
And that's a whole different proposition. So it also is why we are focused on B2B. Like we don't offer a, a product that the consumer can right. use. We have a product that a small, medium-sized fleet can use. And they turn around and offer it to the consumer. So in that way, it kind of reflects the heritage of, of where the idea came from. So yeah, the, the story is not aha moment. And by the way, I don't know how many, I know you've interviewed a lot of people. It's never an aha moment in like a little tiny thing. Maybe it is in hindsight. Yeah, yeah. Maybe in hindsight. When you create but, your your story in, in retrospect, I think that happens a lot, right? Because it's like, yeah. it's better. It's better for an audience to consume it. But yeah, mo mostly it happens. But I would say the Orange Sky degrees. Day was transformative right. for so many people. Like it was, yeah, it was just otherworldly. Why'd you call like, it Orange Sky Day? Because the sky was orange. Yeah. Like we woke up in the morning and there was no sunrise. Yeah. You know, in the morning it was more reddish. And then the entire day... The sky was orange. There's no sunset. We never saw the sun. So I remember like seeing it on the news and stuff, but we flew into San Francisco for an event like two days after that. Yes. And I remember being, this is going to sound a little weird, but like I remember being kind of bummed that I missed it just because like, <laughs> I mean, like I don't want the world to end, but Daryl and I have talked about this a million times. Like if it does, I want it to be like pretty dramatic. <laughs> you were hoping it's spectacular. <laughs> you know what? I, yeah. Like it, I want to witness the craziness of it. And right. that felt like right. one of those like surreal things that it's sad but it's also like a once in a lifetime thing to see like what something that truly feels like the end of the world like another planet yeah you're the one on the beach watching the tidal wave come in yeah movie deep impact i'm taylor leone 100 <laughs> chilling on the beach wow that's a good pull uh but thanks like it, it is or like Woody Harrelson with the volcano. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, up there yeah. with a radio, like let's go. <laughs> <laughs> but at least this, like, like to your point, Sunil, like this had an impact that it wouldn't have had otherwise, right? Like without that huge shared effect that everyone saw and was like just such a dramatic thing like you know if it, like so many other things that go on where we just kind of don't notice them because they're happening all around us all the time right but i feel like it unified people and it kind of like galvanized people into action i've heard that from a number of people where like that was like a turning point especially bay area folks and it came on like that was the third or fourth year of smoke from yeah. wildfires. It came on the epidemic pandemic. Like it's just this feeling that the world is messed up and what can we do? Right. And you know, many of us, most of us have some agency, some ability to do something. And whether it's joining a company that's making a difference or, or joining a, non a nonprofit or starting one, we all can do something. And I think we're all looking for something to do. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to be here helpless while you know the wave consumes us yeah. we want to we want to we want to go out and destroy the asteroid exactly. there's like, something to that with like the great resignation that i don't i haven't seen talked about much maybe it's too early to see the kind of impact but like i feel like a lot of that is that effort right where the people are like well you know i'm inclined to go work for something some company that is making a difference in some way or whatever right and so there's that dissatisfaction and then there's just not enough yet potential i guess hires or something or maybe the skills matches aren't quite there in terms of what people are looking for but like i think that's a big part of it at least from anecdotal evidence right just talking right. to folks yeah. about why they left well them. and like the mission oriented thing is kind of weird too right because i think daryl's right anecdotally at least like it feels to me like a lot of people that left their job and just in general the way that like younger people are looking for jobs is very like more emotional and more like you know 
I want to stand for something good. If this is going to be eight hours of my day every day, I want to feel good about the impact that it's having and like who my leaders are and what they stand for, the principles and values that we have, not just what my paycheck looks like. And I'm curious from you on being like a pretty mission oriented company in a space like climate and sustainability where with a fintech focus too right like that's cool because then you attract and speak to an audience that maybe hasn't had the opportunity to go pursue this type of work before right but it also feels maybe a little bit diluted by this point like not by you Mm. but just in general like the like we're going green right like it's this kind of thing where like it's lost its trust and even like the the idea even if it's not like sustainability, just the idea of like a mission oriented business is something that we've heard so much for so long. And it's like a buzzword. I could go, I could go so deep on this. Let me, let me try for the TLDR. Oh, do it. Okay. Here we go. Whatever makes you happy. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. First of all, every, we only have one life. I agree. And like one of my big mantras is do not waste my time. Do not waste your time. Don't waste people's time because we've only got one and it's not worth wasting your time on useless things. So I have endeavored to try to create companies with positive externalities. In other words, you know, this idea of externality is that not everything that a company does is captured in the price. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, it's known as a negative externality. So for example, if you're a utility and you're making electricity, there's all kinds of positive things you're doing, creating jobs and electricity and making life easier for people. And there are all these negative externalities, your pollution from the coal and natural gas and whatever else. There are certain companies that can create all kinds of positive externalities more than the negative. And so my second company in particular was organized around that way as an anti-spam company. You know, the idea was, can you align the profit motive and the mission so that it's not like, oh, we're a utility, we're going to clean up our act. It's more like, oh, the nature of what we do is fundamentally going to have a positive externality. We're not going to, the capture, the value to society is not just in the price that we charge. There's all this extra stuff that gets generated, like a better climate. And so, you know, I've been thinking about this and focused on it for quite some time. I, you know, I was part of Clean Tech 1.0, <laughs> lost a lot of money in that one. And honestly, my efforts around car sharing and ride sharing, they were organized around the idea that efficiency in transportation would have a positive impact on climate and pollution. Uh, One of the important realizations that I had after Sidecar and with all those wildfires is that I was wrong. Efficiency ends up generating more demand for the product. It's a classic uh, LA roads example, right? Like you keep building the roads and they keep putting cars on them, right? LA roads, great example. So the notion that we got to shift over to electric vehicles is informed by that failure. Even though I helped create tens of billions, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars in value in, in the industries, it was not successful in having an impact on climate. Possible it had a slightly negative impact. But it's also turning out to be a great place to start for electrifying. So, you know, there's a there's a chance at at uh, sort of redeeming the overall direction. Yeah, that I mean that you're not alone in that realization, obviously, right? Like I think that was an assumption a lot of people made you know, with good faith and good intent going into that industry, being like, look, we do this, we're going to raise utilization, but inventory is going to stay flat or go down. It's going to be great for everybody, right? But it didn't end up being the way that it worked, which is fine. Like you try something, you make a hypothesis, and then it goes the other way. But you're 
unique, at least in terms of people I've spoken to who saw that and then were like, well, but we can take the different approach, take that reality we've now made and then turn it into an externality positive net result, right? With this other key thing we really want to do. Because if you start with fleets and whatever, that gets OEMs geared to it, right? OEMs want to build for fleets and volume first, and then the consumers will be pulled along with that. Because that's the other thing about electric cars. When you were talking about EVs and you're talking about price, we're old enough, Jordan, we saw the rise of EVs where like you heard about them and you were like, oh, they're massively expensive. But don't worry. Over time, volume and scale will mean that initial cost comes down. And it hasn't. And that's the thing that still needs solving. So something like what you're doing solves that. It does come down. But here's the problem is it's not coming down fast enough. Right, right. So one of the interesting bits of analysis we've done is that actually we didn't do the analysis. Others have done this analysis, figured out that in order to get to net zero by 2050, we need to have a lot of extra vehicles, 75 million extra vehicles by 2030. Why? Because these things have a long lifetime, right? You can't just be like, oh, cool. It's 20, 2045, time to throw a bunch of cars out there. <laughs> so we need to get to net zero by 2050 in order to hold warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So, you know, it avoids kind of like the catastrophic, you know, in the analogy we here, uh, the tidal, the tidal wave yeah. version of the of climate change. So that's that's the gap we're trying to solve for, is that even with all of what government's doing today and all the subsidies and all the infrastructure investments and all the you can't drive with a gas powered car in London, like even with all of that, we're still not gonna get there. It's still it's still a significant gap. Since you're a found listener, I'm going to bet you're also pretty interested in startups and technology. Great news. We're going to give you an offer for 25% off a subscription to TechCrunch Plus. TC Plus is our premium product. And what you get there are deep dive interviews with some of the best startup founders and investors in the industry. You get surveys of different investors in different areas of expertise and geographies. You get market maps of opportunities in new and emerging industries. And you get deep dive looks at some of the hottest startups out there. You can subscribe to TechCrunch Plus at TechCrunchPlus.com. That's probably the easiest way to get there. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, just follow the links for TechCrunch Plus and you'll get a prompt to subscribe. Once you're there, just enter the code, which is found, the name of this podcast, during checkout and you'll get 25% off a one-year TechCrunch Plus subscription. Are you a super duper huge fan of Found the Podcast? We have big news for you. So we're going to start doing live recordings where you can actually come hang out with us. We always do this podcast on video, but we're going to show that video to the world. Yes. And it's going to start on February 17th. We're going to be doing it every other Thursday. Our sister podcast, Equity, is also going to be doing that on their alternating Thursdays. All the podcasts from TechCrunch together well separate but together. yeah the TechCrunch podcasts are coming to you live so that means you'll get to listen to new episodes early and i think probably the best part that i'm excited about is you're going to be able to join in on those conversations so you can log in to hop in and you'll be able to chat your questions directly to us right within the episode and talk to our guests and we'll be able to incorporate you know what you're thinking and what you're wondering about right into the episode itself and those are all going down. Well, starts on February 17th. They all go down at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, every other Thursday. And we're going to have some stellar guests. In fact, our first guest 
for February 17th is going to be Thor Friedrichsen. If you don't recognize that name, you should. He founded Quiz Up, which was a massive game back in the day. And then he also founded a gaming studio called Tea Time. And he's working on his third thing now, serial entrepreneur. And he's two for two on creating hyper viral casual mobile games. So yeah. lots to learn there. Maybe he'll just dish. Maybe he'll reveal during that episode what his next huge game is. We can't guarantee that. Asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> Maybe he'll explain how he got two viral hits and has yet to really bring them through on the successful business side of things. So you just find the link in the description if you want to register to come hang out with us. What about on the supply side? Because the other thing I hear people you know, complain about a lot, especially at the very, like right now with supply chain issues is I can't, I want to buy a car with a battery in it. I can't find a car with a battery and a lot to buy. Right. So how has that affected your business and how are you kind of navigating that? Well, the supply chain issues are definitely a short term problem. We do see that that will resolve itself just through all the investments that are happening. But the more interesting thing that's happened in the last, there's plenty of supply promises being made by the automakers. In other words, they're saying, we're going to deploy a lot of electric vehicles. A really interesting thing is happening, though, which is BMW is releasing a version of their a 4 Series. And the CEO is quoted as saying, this is in the Wall Street Journal um, on Saturday, that they will build that car with either a gas engine or battery depending on demand. So unlike the world of Tesla, which is just all battery. They're going to like crowdfund it. I would say the other way around. In other words, if they don't see adequate demand for batteries, they're going to be like, well, we're just going to keep going with the gas. So we need to demonstrate massive demand for electric vehicles. Hmm. In order, and it won't, I'm certain it will not be just BMW taking that approach because you know when you're an automaker, you make a huge investment in a plant and you know, in fairness to them, the sort of whipsaw effect of, you know, Trump comes into power and says, no, we don't, we're not going to do electric cars. And Biden comes in and says, yes, we are. And like, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's hard to build when you're like, because they build their platforms like for like a span of five 15 years. years or whatever, at least, right? They build their platform and they're like, we're going to build one platform. All of our vehicles are going to be based on it for at least a couple decades or whatever, right? And it's a massive, massive investment. And then to have the rug pulled out from under you every four years is, must be horrible. Right. I can't imagine. Well, that part of it's probably not going away, unfortunately, right? Like the pendulum swinging at full speed right now doesn't seem to be slowing in any way. That's a political pendulum swing. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to turn it into a nonstop consumer wave. In some ways, it's a chicken and egg problem where you're like, well, who goes first, right? But like, if you get everybody behind the idea of like, we're all in on this, then it's not going to matter what the government does. And it's a bit of a wag the dog situation anyway, because like they dictate where the government decides to. Right now, anyway. EV adoption is still heavily, heavily a project of government incentives and programs. You know, like, for example, the way that the, the incentives that are put out there by the car maker are used to balance their ability to sell polluting SUVs. Right. And even with Tesla, because Tesla's selling those credits to other OEMs. So even if you're just a pure battery maker, you still don't get away from it. So we've got to shift that dynamic away from this thing that they're doing, you know, just because of CAFE standards in the US and other standards elsewhere 
so that it's kind of in our collective control. Right. I was going to mention, I was going to go back to the, the great resignation because I think there's another interesting dynamic there that relates to us. Lots of people are quitting their jobs to go create businesses. Right. And I don't think most people realize how many businesses have already been created around the sharing economy, in particular, the car sharing economy. So companies like Toro, which just yeah. you know released their S1 to go public and get around in hire car. We've got a partnership with hire car and Turo released their in their S1 over something like 85,000 hosts. And I know from you know experience with car sharing and ride sharing, probably about 20% of them are running it as a real business. Right. So in other words, you can make a living doing this. Yeah. And and those are our customers. You know, those folks out there who are who figured out how they can have, you know, usually at least five to ten cars out for rent. Like you can make, you know, at that level, you can make a living. And many of our customers are you know, up in the, in the dozens of cars, a few of them past a hundred cars. Yeah. Like it's a real interesting business. Yeah. That's an interesting part of Turo. I speak to Turo fairly often, but like, I think that was like a part that people didn't really understand about the platform is they thought it was, I mean, very similar in terms of trajectory to Airbnb, but they thought it was a thing where you would just like, Oh, somebody has a cool Mustang and they're not driving and I'm going to go rent it. But it's actually a platform for establishing small rental companies in effect, right? Like competitors to the big Hertz or whatever, but like little tiny individual owner operated things. It's that's where their real opportunity is. And they've explicitly launched it to some markets with that target in mind. Right. And like at first they were targeting the existing mom and pop shops that are open, but then they were creating their own and it is you're right it's like it's a there's a massive number of businesses that are just that it's a passive income business in a lot of ways i mean there is some active involvement but in the same way that somebody's shopify stores jordan is the part where i mentioned shopify shopify <laughs> are they a sponsor no no they're not i just used to work there every episode shopify so. in canada <laughs> but you know a lot of people associate that too like once you resign and you want to like start control your own destiny you find these opportunities where there are platforms you can build little businesses and you work on them and you invest in them but they they're not necessarily tracked or visible to a lot of folks this great resignation may end up turning around we've had a decline in entrepreneurship since the 70s right. despite all of you know topics that you all write about it's kind of surprising and it's possible this this pandemic will actually turn it around because there's a lot of people deciding, oh, wow, I can go make a living on my e-commerce site or um, as an Airbnb magnet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, also think about it as a as a tech entrepreneur. I think this story gets played out over and over again, which is we go out and we create these platforms that allow as little as one person to plug in and do something, whether that's, you know, eBay back in the old days, or more recently, Airbnb and Turo, and, but also companies like Mosaic, which is a solar finance company. You know, they start out being able to handle small participation. And then people discover, oh, wow, I can make a living on this. I can make a real business on it. And then the volume of transactions ends up being driven by the people who are kind of professionals yeah. at it. And the same is true for ride sharing. Yeah. Right. Like when you get into a ride share, it used to be everybody was kind of a casual driver. Now you get into it. And most of the time, it's somebody who does it either part time or most time. And so the same dynamic plays out in all of these platforms, because once you can create that low cost infrastructure yeah. that's capable of handling a lot of people, you can scale it up to take on incumbents that have a much higher cost of infrastructure. Yeah, I'm going to this will be my last Shopify thing. I swear, Jordan, but that that 70%, that was one of Toby's favorite quotes as well, right? That entrepreneurship is actually on the 
decrease. So it's their job to kind of turn around. And then also they created Shopify Plus by accident because for exactly the reason you're talking about, right? Like they were supporting small individual sellers. Some of those got to the scale where they were coming and saying like, oh, can I, I'm going to run my international retail business that does 100 million in revenue like yearly on your platform. Can you support that? And they were like, I guess, I guess we can. And then they just added a plus to it and said, this is our product now, right? And gradually added enterprise figures. But it, it's the exact same thing you're describing for the e-commerce market. Yeah, same thing's happening with Stripe yeah. and just on and on. Like This is the same movie that's playing out in, in tech over and over again. I do then want to ask or transition into future-focused stuff for Spring Pre-EV. Like, are you, do you think about different kinds of financial products or do you think about the scaling customers? Are you seeing that already? How do you see the evolution of the business? What a good question. We think a lot about what we do next. I can tell you that it's all organized based on our top priorities. So as a corporation, we consider our top priority to be climate impact. That's above even having profit and all the rest. So our when we think about new product opportunities, we think about that as kind of guiding principle. So the number one thing we're going to do is simply execute on what we what's in front of us. You know, when you've got great product market fit, you've got go to market fit. Don't screw around. Just (laughs) go get that done. So that's like job one, two, and three. Now, in addition to that. We know that there are uh, additional kind of uh, kind of sub supporting products that will that will help us in that journey. So those are all coming. I'm not going to pre-announce them here, but <laughs> you can you can imagine that you can imagine that there are things that would make our fleet managers more efficient. There are things that you know our, our customers more efficient. There are things that would that would kind of expand the offering so that we could make it attractive to more and more people. Mm-hmm. Like right now, our offering is. You're a car sharing host on Toro or on hire car. You can get a handful of electric vehicles. You can get dozens of electric vehicles. And you know, you're going to pay a monthly fee and a mileage yeah. fee. But you're not going to have to go through a credit check. You're not, you don't have to mortgage your house. You don't need five years of operating history. But it fits within a particular band mm-hmm. of vehicles. So you can see us expanding the band of vehicles. But beyond that, the next segment that we see beyond this kind of car sharing and gig economy is being able to offer something for high mileage drivers. If you're a high mileage driver today, which by the way, there's about 10% of US drivers, there's almost 300 million cars in the US, 280. So 10%, like roughly 30 million drivers that put on an average of 30,000 miles a year. Now, these drivers skew SUV and pickup truck. So, you know, there aren't good SUVs and pickup trucks that are EVs. The world's not kind of ready to go create an EV product for them quite yet, but it's about mm-hmm. to happen. So we want to create an offering that if you are a high mileage driver, you could enter into this mileage purchase agreement and lower the price of your car or your truck, SUV. The reason why it's so compelling for a high mileage driver is that your options today, you don't really want to get into a lease. No. It's normally, it penalizes you for being a high mileage driver. Yeah. So, you know, we like opportunities where the competition is terrible. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of our next segment after this, this car sharing economy. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Cause yeah, that's, I mean, that's the reason why at least, cause I go in and I'm like, I'm going to use this many kilometers in Canada, but they're like, (laughs) they they are like, okay, first of all, you shouldn't even own a car idiot. And then second of all. This is great. We love you. You're our, you're our favorite customer, right? 
but yeah. And by the way, can you buy can you buy cars on Shopify in Canada? Ah, that's a good question. <laughs> it would really. Ah, oh, man, I gotta I gotta learn that because I could drop it. Because uh, you could just totally podcasts. drop that. That would have been. I can't believe you didn't prepare for this interview like Listen, that. Listen, I prepared in other ways, but not you that. Got three of Daryl's favorite things all in one, which is buying something excessive. <laughs> Shopify in yeah. Canada. Yeah, ding, yeah, ding, yeah. ding. You work with Tesla and Nissan, for instance. I pronounced those wrong. Uh, Tesla and Nissan. Um, but <laughs> do you work with a lot of OEMs? And is it something where if you, especially with this new product category, right? We we see Chevy, I think, is electrifying Silverado, Ford, obviously, F-150, and they'll probably go down the, the line of their trucks to the more affordable ones. Are you in there early with those conversations, talking to them? Do you have their ear on that kind of stuff? Yeah, we're in conversations with a bunch of OEMs, including new OEMs that are bringing electric vehicles to the U.S. We also just announced, you know, a lot of the cars we buy are used cars right. to put them into this program. So we announced a partnership with Cox Automotive. Cox Automotive may not be a household name, but a lot of the Huge. companies that they own are yeah. like Kelly Blue Book and Auto Trader. And they also process, they're like the world's largest processor of cars that do like 6 million a year. So we're, we've teamed up with them to acquire the cars, to inspect them and condition them, get them ready to deploy and a bunch of other logistical things that basically give us scale to be able to deploy across the country. So that, that helps us a lot with the used segment mm -hmm. or the pre-owned yeah. segment. And then for new cars, we're going to end conversations with a number of, of OEMs about getting access to more cars. But yeah, the Nissan, we've got a number of them showing up this month and next. We're excited about continuing to expand because they've got a new Aria coming yep. out this year. The Leaf has actually I mean, kind of got a, a bad start because it was kind of a compliance car. In, in other words, yep. a car that was built just so that they could comply with the rules and not all that well designed. But it's actually a pretty good car, especially the, the latest version. Yeah, yeah, they iterated well on that. Yeah, like the, it gives them the ability to say like, oh, well, we were one of the first, right? Like that is the other side benefit. The Leaf has been around for so long, but mileage on the original Leaf was such that like it was not really a useful automobile. The new one is like a perfect fleet car, I would imagine, for in-city use, basically, right? Like it's not... And we know it's very popular in some European cities, specifically the electric. And so... Yeah, we're seeing good traction here. Well, I think we're just about out of time, but like, I really, I just want to end by saying or asking, you're like a serial founder, obviously. You found a lot of companies, been very successful at it. With that combined with the climate topic, like, is the VC conversation now at this point just like, okay, like, come on, it's me. Look what I'm doing. Give me some money. Or is, <laughs> is it still tricky and difficult? Or how's that go for you? Well, I think it does make it way easier, both because of knowledge and relationships and track record. I guess that's three things, isn't it? And it's kind of like the more successful you are, the more ambitious you, right. you you get. And and frankly, the ambition here is driven by a big social mission. So like we need to get really big. And to be successful, we know that it won't be just us. Like we can't go deploy yeah. 75 million vehicles ourselves. We know that, that that others will do it. But in order to get other people to do it, we need to be very successful. Right. I mean, the analogy I use is if Elon Musk went around trying to convince car companies to build electric cars 20 years ago, instead of starting a car company and having it be, you know, he's no maybe no longer worth a trillion, but worth a lot of money more than the existing companies. Yeah. You know, now there's a bunch of conversations in boardrooms like, you need to be more like Tesla. 
that only happened because Tesla ended up being so successful. Right, right. So we need to be so successful that there are boardroom conversations in the incumbent sources of financing for the automotive world that say, how do you be more like Spring Free EV? Because look what they're doing, look at the market cap, et cetera. So that requires a lot of engagement, not yeah. only interestingly, not just in the VC world, but also in the world of asset finance. So something that some of your listeners may not be as familiar with, but in the climate world, it's really important to understand that this is pretty capital intensive, but you don't want to use the venture money to finance all of that capital intensity. You want to use asset finance. And so we've already been successful in in raising and using asset finance, and and we're out talking on on both fronts on both the sort of equity and the asset finance fund. Yeah, that, that is a good point. I'm sure people don't realize, but I know other companies that are in the same boat where you don't realize like they are, a, you know, fundraising is a slog, right? And a lot of our listeners know fundraising is a slog, but imagine you're also at the same time going and talking to yeah banks and asset lenders and you're, you got to pitch them too in a, in a very different yeah. way, but you're doing simultaneous yeah, pitching right. on both sides, right? Now, luckily for the climate world, there's, I mean, one of the very big differences between now and Clean Tech 1.0 is there's a, so much more capital that is that understands it, and many of them have been through Clean Tech 1.0, right. and now have the lessons of both what to watch out for and what can work. And so it's so much easier because of that. The learnings from last time around. All right. Well, that is going to do us for time. But thanks very much for joining us, Sunil. It was great talking to you. We had pretty far ranging conversation, but awesome, illuminating. I learned a lot. I don't know. Well, thanks, Neil. It was fun talking to you. Well, I enjoyed doing it. Thank you for having me on. All right. That was our conversation with Sunil. We sprung free EV. (laughs) Jordan, what did you think about our chat with Sunil? You know, I'm always interested in these startups that innovate on the things that are normally kind of set in stone, right? Like business model innovations, right? Which is essentially what this is. Like we call it a fintech company. It's not, I mean, it's kind of a fintech company, but like ultimately it's just buy these cars a different way. It reminds me of ClassPass, right? Where ClassPass was like, what if you did classes, but on a subscription? We take for granted, I think sometimes those kinds of innovations or breakthroughs. And so I'm always interested in people already buy EVs. We want people to buy more EVs and buy them faster. Uh, Let's just change the way we buy them, right? We don't have to change anything about the the technology itself. So I'm always interested in that because I think it's a different way to approach a startup that people like, it gets forgotten, right? Or ignored more because there's always like a playbook. Right. It's like, oh, this is how cars are sold, or this is how gym memberships are sold, or this is how we'll just follow that, but we'll make a different gym membership or we'll make a different car, right? You can look at the other side and it can be just as fruitful, if not more. It's this area where like, essentially the companies are looking at a bunch of ingredients that kind of already exist and then putting the ingredients together in a way that is novel to, to achieve the thing they wanted to achieve, right? Like this is one where it is a technology, but it's like a technology that often gets overlooked where it's like a financial technology, right? Like a debt investment and like debt capital is a technology. Mm-hmm. It's just like so fundamental that we kind of don't really think about it in that way. But it's like somebody oh. had to come up with the idea of like, oh, this organization that has money can lend it to this other one. And that's not just like something that exists in nature. It's a technology, right? <laughs> it's like wood. <laughs> <laughs> well, it exists in Settlers of Catan, which is, again, not nature. It's technology. 
look for sheep. Yeah, but I did think it, you know, it's cool because it's one of those things where it's like, you can tell he thinks about this stuff a lot and is like spending a ton of time thinking about like, look, this is what I know. And here's what I want to achieve. And he brought up repeatedly that the company has their top line goal is actually not profitability or revenue. It is to proliferate the adoption of EVs, right? Which is one of those things where you're like, well, can mm -hmm, that really, sure. I mean, can it be it? I guess I can if you're a pre-public company. You know, their B Corps exist and things like that for, so that you can actually define that as part of your mission while still being like, a, you know, legally satisfying stakeholders and everything but like pre-public yeah you can say that and it sounded like he cares about that a lot right and it, but it, yeah it sounded like he meant it yeah. which is something we talked about a lot right like the climate of climate tech right. right is like this thing that has had a counterweight to it which is like oh do it is it really credible is this really what you mean or is it just like greenwashing or you know mission driven is thrown around all the time and like yeah. You know, it does feel very genuine coming from Sunil. Yeah, and he brought up the point that green tech now is in many ways an easier area to work in when you're talking to investors because of all the lessons learned from the first green tech bubble. So in a lot of ways, that was bad for climate tech in general, because when you had the first, actually, I mean, I think he brought it up, but I think there's been probably two rounds of, of that now, like hype and deflation. But like there was a lot going on and a lot of stuff was being thrown at the wall and there was very little in the way of accounting for what was real and what was not, right? And I think people got burned and learned their lessons out of that and are coming into this with a bit more rigor i mean who knows five years from now maybe i'll eat my words but we'll still be doing this podcast of course so i'll yeah. just like check in and be like well our lives never change yeah <laughs> um or we'll all be killed by the tidal wave that you yeah we'll be, uh, we'll be bones on the beach but... yeah That's... i like it that way i mean it's alliterative and it's also like pretty cheerful the way that you just put it so yeah uh, not, not it, makes, it makes you imagine like a pina colada in the mix, right like bones on the beach like a funny <laughs> skeleton yeah with yeah. a like, cool beach hat and stuff yeah mm -hmm. that's where we're going some nice beachy music <laughs> you know he brought up that he had lived through this and he brought up also like the most interesting thing for me from this podcast was that he was cognizant of the impact that his previous focus had, like car sharing. Like he's been involved in multiple car sharing startups. And he brought up that thing that like is increasingly being demonstrated by the data that car sharing didn't alleviate traffic emissions. in cities. It, yeah. it exacerbated it significantly, right? Right. Which was not the intent, at least it was not the way that it was sold. I think depending on who you're talking about, some people might have been aware that that was going to be the case or might not have been. It seemed like for Sunil, it was genuinely like, oh, this is an unintended consequence, an unintended externality, as he put it, that he did not like, right? So it's cool to hear about somebody realizing that they've done that and then setting about to correct it. Whereas when you, we talk about negative externalities in tech, a lot of the times we're talking about like people realizing they exist and then ignoring it or going off to do something else. Zuckerberg is the prime example, but like, oh, I did Facebook. Right, easy one. Society is ruined. I think I'm going to go do a metaverse now, right? Like I'll just leave <laughs> that. I'll leave that burning pile of garbage behind and go do a metaverse. With few, like with little evidence to show that any lessons were learned, right? Like right. we're not, it's not like we're going to see metaverse be like, no ads and we're never going to take your data. Right. And, you know, we're policing the way that conversations are happening and public discourse takes place. He's like, let's just do it with head headsets on. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Same thing all over again for, you know, in the other, the other place. Yeah. 
but yeah, so Neil had that genuine moment of self-reflection and like a realization that he wanted to do something better. And he applied the levers he knows how to use in the way to maximize that impact. Right. So I think that's very cool. I think so too. I also thought it was interesting that he like did not want to build this for like 10 years. Right. And was like trying to hand off like a good idea to an entrepreneur. I'm curious if like that's a thing that happens a lot. And I think among VCs it is. I hear about it a lot. And it's like, you know, they're all saying, they were saying like, someone please build this and I'll invest in it. Right. And then eventually they get tired of it. But from the other side, wouldn't you be like, no, I don't want to build your idea. Right. Like there, there's like the entrepreneur in residence, right. That kind of like does that sometimes. Or like the studio model, right. right? Where those people are like, yeah, I just want to like build the thing, right? Yeah, like yeah, I don't yeah. necessarily care about what it is. Yeah, from the entrepreneurship community, it's they're rarely free radicals just floating around looking for yeah. an idea. Yeah. Like, yeah, you got anything I could build? Like they're normally like, I'm super passionate about this one idea I had six years ago, and I just yeah. like couldn't stop thinking about it. Well, that's why I think with with people like Sunil, who are operators and are like lifelong operators, and then go into the venture space, they usually end up ping-ponging back out into the operator space again because they get one of those ideas that catches root mm -hmm. and they're just like somebody's got to build this and eventually they realize it's got to be them right well anyways it was a good conversation you should rate and review this podcast etc yes. etc yeah but be excited about it unlike jordan just like get in there and get really excited about your review and leave a scintillating one maybe put cap lock cap lock caps lock put caps lock on put caps lock on put, just why is it so town. hard to say Put, ca put caps locks on. <laughs> uh, anyway, good day, folks. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. We are produced by Ashad Kulkarni and edited and produced by Maggie Stamets. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com and you can call us at 510-936-1618 and leave us a voicemail. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Spring free. Spring free. Free V V.